The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. DePaul. 17% oxygen, 81% nitrogen. Sounds like home. Any people? The planet supports a diverse ecology, but there are no signs of humanoid life. Still, someone may have a claim on it. We don't want to go waltzing into their backyard. Scan for marker buoys, beacons, man-made satellites. None in range, sir. Looks like no one's planted a flag just yet. Prep a shuttle pod, Mr. Tucker. I like the looks of the northern continent. See if you can find a good place to set down. Yes, sir. Captain, there are a number of protocols you may want to consider. Protocols? Vulcan ships would begin by sending automated probes down to collect more detailed scans. If the planet proved to be Minshara class, we would then conduct a geophysical survey from orbit. Minshara class? Suitable for humanoid life. How long would all that take? Six or seven days. You expect us to sit up here for a week while probes have all the fun? This planet has been here a long time. It will still be here in seven days. I understand that you have a more cautious approach, but we didn't come out here to tiptoe around to get the pod ready. I'd like you to put together the survey team. I assume that's not a violation of protocol. Morning, London. It's Thursday, July 18, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is always a number you can reach us on the show. And today, boy, it's going to be a bit of a lighter show today, only partly because we'll be talking about lights, specifically the pending incandescent light bulb ban, among a wide variety of themes and subjects today. In fact, Robert and I even had a bit of a disagreement as to whether or not to refer to our overall theme today as a potpourri or as a smorgasbord. <laughs> These are the kinds of things we argue about incessantly, <laughs> which includes among other possibilities, telephones and the proposed cell phone seizure powers a couple of local political reps are considering, the discovery of new planets for which you can plan your next summer vacation, next millennia or ten that is, <laughs> voting and polarization of the issues, the train derailment disaster in Quebec, the London Free Press, uh, London West by-election poll, distracted driving, distracted voters, distracted talk show hosts, and as Robert just tells me, even something about the cover of the Rolling Stone. Are we going to get all that in today, Robert? Well, probably not. No, okay. Let's give it a good go anyway. <laughs> okay, well, you, you take the first shot. Where do well, you I'm going to start off with that Rolling Stone article okay. because I, was, I wasn't even going to do anything about it, but last night I saw this for the first time, that that uh, magazine, Rolling Stone magazine, decided to put on its cover Zokhar Zarnaev, the Boston mm -hmm. murderer, the bomber. And I was shocked by it. Uh, a lot of people I know were shocked by it. It's all the rage out there now talking about it. But um, I well, found... Clearly a different reaction to this than to putting Adolf Hitler on the cover of Time magazine, 
right? Or remember that was the case, two men of the year. Yeah. Well, this is rather because sensitive. That, yeah. <laughs> I think I think this is more about the magazine than than yeah. the picture. I know, the picture actually. He looks like. I have to say this. He looks like Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I wasn't the only one that noticed that either. But, uh, but I understand on the cover they actually called him a monster. Um, oh, that, did they? That's what I heard on the radio this morning. I haven't seen the cover yet, okay. so I, I'm not speaking from experience. But, but the reaction is certainly interesting. Well, I found one rather salty response from an aspiring... Uh, or a person who aspires to be on the cover of Rolling Stone until recently. Um, he's uh, David Michael Draymond, who was the lead singer for the heavy metal band Disturbed and uh, Device. And I'll just read you his letter, because it basically sums up my feeling of Rolling Stone magazine, now that they decided to put that particular monster on the cover. I'm going to quote from uh, Draymond's tweet. It's very long. Quote, how far the mighty have fallen. I used to dream of making the cover of Rolling Stone magazine as it used to be the ultimate statement of legitimacy for an aspiring musician, and it meant that you had really made it. Over the past five years, Rolling Stone has become less and less about music and has become more and more about... Well, I have to, uh, I have to change the rather salty language in this <laughs> tweet, so let's just uh, put in BS... Pop culture nonsense. Even though many of us may not care for it, we were able to live with it until this. You dare to put the image of the Boston bomber on the effing cover of your magazine. <laughs> Are you out of your ultra-liberal, sympathetic-to-a-fault effing minds? You have not only succeeded in blatantly insulting and dishonoring the victims and families whose lives were forever affected by this rabid animal, but you now have glorified his cowardly and unforgivable act. Why? Because it will sell magazines? Because it will create controversy? Because you actually do sympathize with this abhorrent, cowardly piece of blankety-blank. You have made it attractive and validated the act to a whole new generation of wannabe terrorists seeking martyrdom and infamy. You and your kind are the reason why people like that can go out in a blaze of glory while murdering innocents. Honestly, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, go F yourselves. The next <laughs> terrorist uh, murdering incident, be it uh, another bomber or a madman with an assault rifle unleashing the fire upon a school full of children, is on you. May your conscious, consciences, if you have them, weigh immeasurably heavy on you for the rest of your lives. I condemn this act, this notion, and this worthless piece of blankety-blank rag of a magazine. May the powers that have <laughs> mercy on your souls, may the powers that be have mercy on your souls, because the next time something like this happens, I assure you, the world won't go to hell. Unquote. And that was, of course, David Michael Draymond. Well, response. he was doing a lot of fracking there, wasn't he? <laughs> Lots of fracking going on there in that particular salty piece of... And you're that, saying well, you Weird Al Yankovic tweeted oh. this. Apparently... All this time, I've been trying to get on the cover of Rolling Stone the hard way. <laughs> yeah, okay. That makes it about the magazine, doesn't it? Oh, it's all about the magazine. Yeah. I think. Well, I what mean, people see in in the magazine itself. Uh, do you think you would have had the same reaction if Time Magazine or Newsweek, do they even exist? <laughs> yeah, I think the there would have been a similar response, even though they did put Bin Laden on there, uh, one-time Man of the Year type of thing. But I think a news magazine. A news magazine. See, they're, they're Rolling Stone is a bit of a news magazine, though. I, I think, oh, it always has. Yeah, been, yeah, and so I think people are discounting that function of it and whether it 
yeah, it sounds like an editorial error here to put his picture that way. Well, that magazine started cover. out in the 60s, late 60s, I believe, um, basically trying to cover the alternative rock music industry out in California. Mm. And um, Well, they cover a lot more than It rock, was only though. in the 80s that they started to infuse it with a bit of uh, other items yeah. and, uh, and other newsworthy things. So, I don't know. Um, I just found it dis uh, you know, disrespectful of the, uh, the people involved in that disaster. And... Uh, it's not a matter of too soon. It's a matter of glorifying uh, violence, I think. I, I just disliked it myself. And mm. I agree with Draymond's response. Interesting. Is that it? Yeah, what do you got? Oh, well, interesting. I was uh, listening to... Uh, this is going back to something I want to talk about. Uh, polarization of political issues. I was uh, listening to the radio on... Uh, this was actually on Canada Day on, on July 1st. And they had all sorts of special broadcasting, and locally they played uh, a John Tory commentary. You know, he has his own radio show yes. in Toronto, eh? Yes. And uh, it was called Weekend Review, in which he argued that low voter turnout was caused by polarization of political discourse. And his solution, as he offered it there, was, uh, quote, civility in the legislature and, quote, constructive discussion, end quote, to which I have to ask constructive discussion with who and about what. You know, like, it just, it just hit me that, boy, those PCs ever like to talk a lot but not really make too many decisions, even on issues that seem like no-brainers. But this is so much like the stuff, too, that, that, that Glenn Pearson locally keeps talking about. He wants everybody just to get along. And as he so clearly and wrongly, I think, stated in his July 6, 2013 Free Press editorial, quote, the future feels like a jungle. How we act has become more indicative of our present state than what we decide. Enemies are made, nerves are frayed, and the future feels more like a jungle than an integrated and sustainable community, end quote. Pearson thinks that the, quote, 10,000 people who seriously joined the rethink process and expressed a keen desire to arrive at decisions that could remain safeguarded against political manipulation and individual agendas, end quote. So, in other words... Pearson won't be happy unless 20,000 people oppose the 10,000, <laughs> not just one person, right? But, uh, you know, that's, that's how we get into the trouble, this whole idea of getting along with each other, you know? It's what we decide to do that gets us into the trouble we're in, not that we're nice guys or not. The, the, the decisions we make do matter. I mean, you can all be getting along fine and all decide to jump over that cliff together. You're still going to be just as dead as if you were arguing about it on the way down, <laughs> right? So what you do matters. For heaven's sake, that's all that matters. And the people who have led us into our current financial crisis are the very ones who've been getting along with each other and not with those who disagree, let me tell you. Now, to his credit, in John Tory's thing, he said he, he would oppose forcing people to vote. Isn't that nice? Like they do in Australia. But, uh, you know, most embarrassingly, embarrassingly, he couldn't understand why no political party was calling for voting reform, including voting online. <laughs> just yeah. there, which, of course, was one of Freedom Party of Ontario's 18 planks last election, which you can still see online with the commercial. But let's get to the point here, though, is if you don't have polarization, what, again, we've talked about this before, what choice do you have to make? They want to, they want to present you with, you know, X number of the same option. Here, choose between the personalities. But we're all going to do the same thing. There's no right or wrong, no justice or injustice, because those are polar opposites. <laughs> right? That's what it is. And they're being avoided by politicians who oppose polarization. 
But here's an even bigger issue. I don't know about you, Robert, but in all my life, I've never had a problem getting along with people I disagree with. I've seen you master it, too, with people who are yelling at you sometimes, right? Well, sure. And, and does that mean you don't get along with them? Disagreement is not a sin, you know? It's not a horrible thing. That's what politics is about. And it seems to me Tory and Pearson are, are expressing uh, a problem in this regard. Maybe that's where their difficulty lies. Um, maybe they don't have what's necessary to be in a forum where people are expected to disagree and debate with one another. They're obviously very uncomfortable about it, and that's all I hear from them is this discomfort. I don't want to argue with anybody because it'll put me on the spot. They'll have to know what I'm thinking. You know, the three parties have become so alike that whenever there is even the slightest nuanced disagreement between them, this is seen as some slight. And uh, I also note that they never ever give us any examples of this t terrible polarization or examples of what disagreement they're talking about. I never get an example of that, but they're always talking about it. So, uh, you know, to them, the God of the machine is the majority vote process. And, uh, you know, what we vote for is irrelevant to them, even if it kills us. And that's really the bottom line here, don't you think? I experienced a lot of that when I was uh, on the school board, you know. Oh, I know. That's and, what I was uh, referring to. Well, what happened is the chairperson would put something on the table... And it was never expected that you would disagree with it. It was just uh, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, rather do this, why don't we just wait a bit and then do, do it a little later, things like that. There was mm -hmm. never any polarization of an issue until I got there, and I would say, no, I don't think we should be doing it at all, I disagree with this. And they would... Um, get me aside in the uh, in the room later and says no no we gotta we gotta put a united front on on this right you're not supposed to be you know uh, showing that there's any discord i don't know why I'm they sorry, think I'm sorry why am i here why well, am i here what does a united front mean all you need is 51 percent of the vote and there's yeah. your united front you're you done go. that's all it is that's the process yeah and yet they don't like that you know there's another manifestation of this and this is people who and you hear them in, in an election already you know they say oh the problem with politicians is you vote for them and then they get elected and then they just do what the party line says they don't go along with their party well, let me tell you something if you got a politician who's running for a party he disagrees with that's his problem from the outset he should not be with that party why is he joining a party that he doesn't agree with and cannot support to represent in front of the people right and this is where people get mixed up with what political parties are about if you want a different point of view from a politician he's got to be coming from a different background different political party and and to say that they all disagree with their parties and to me the first question is why why are you running for that party i was invited to run for the conservatives before and i said no thanks mm -hmm. Right? Because they said they liked what I'm saying. And remember, I said, why don't you just say what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre. All that is all based on killing the debate. Yes. Making sure nobody's out there. And that's what all those Unite the Right things we went to are all about. Killing the debate. I always, I always killed their debate. I got up and I'd say, the reason you brought me here is to shut me up. Because yeah. you want me to join your movement and that will shut me up because I won't be able to say what I'm saying. Well, look, if the, if the differences are too big to bring us together, then we shouldn't be. Right? If that chasm is too big. Now, there's always going to be small differences within every group. And those are the differences within the group that people have to decide to put aside. 
for certain purposes. Not at all times, but at certain times. And that's what goes on in elections. I think a lot of people have some romantic notions about representation and how it works. But democracy is not about majority rule. It's about government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And whatever form it takes, as long as the people are the source of that government's power, you're living a democracy. You know, that's bottom line on that one too any comments well i was listening to the radio uh, today as well on the talk shows where a lot of what you just said was mm-hmm. reiterated and i i think people don't really understand our system of government they i really don't think they oh, do that would change the entire parliamentary system. because they're saying well everybody's in party politics well you know what there are independents who run out there sure. there are smaller parties like the freedom party who run out there why don't you vote for them and can you imagine you've got that choice can you imagine what Parliament would be like? Okay, right now you've got three three or four competing factions. What do you want now? You want a hundred and some competing factions? You've you got think Israel there. You, know, you really think that's going to... That's a dysfunctional government. Yes. You need parties to, to help people focus on those basic fundamentals yes. that people are running for. And beyond that, you can get it. Local riding issues are often not even on the scale of of national and provincial issues. And that's another reason you need a larger organization, because you have a bigger picture outside your local community that you have to look at, too. So what's evolved over the years is a good system. It always comes down to the people in it and the philosophies that they a spouse. You're not going to save anything by changing party systems, by rearranging the, 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 the chairs on the Titanic, as long as you're sitting the same people in them all the time, right? <laughs> and that's, that's where it comes down to. It's ideas matter, and the choices you make do matter. It's not all about just getting along and agreeing, because that's how we got to where we are. That's all I got to say. Yeah. I don't know if I have time to uh, cover oh. this article. Maybe we should go to a break, and then we'll Why come we? back. And I we'll can, come uh, right back uh, right after this. Okay. You ready to say goodnight there, Lightfoot? <laughs> Just as soon as uh, I thank the vast silent majority, silent majority who quietly and without saying so agree with me wholeheartedly on the vital issues of the day. Hey, that's just keen, but uh, tell me, he asked, seeking enlightenment. If people are so quiet and mm-hmm. they don't say so, how do you know they agree with you on anything? Well, how do you know they don't? Gotcha! Another way to look at it. It's the only way I know. Yeah, well, thanks anyway, Silent Majority. Just keep those cards and letters. Yeah, uh, uh... Dalton McGinty's liberals want to ban the incandescent bulb in 2012. Tim Hudak's progressive conservatives have wanted them banned since 2007. Ontario has no shortage of electricity. A freedom government will not ban the incandescent bulb. Switch on to Freedom Party. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry if you were expecting this year's FB election ad, but just keep those cards and letters if you're looking forward <laughs> to the coming bulb ban. You heard about that, haven't you, Robert? The oh, bulb yes. ban is still on there. Yes. Federal know, and provincial uh, legislation, isn't there? Uh, well, the, that's interesting. Uh, I think the provincial has been put on hold because of that ad we ran in, in the 2011 election, uh-huh. and everybody put their, their, their things on hold. Um, you know, I, I recall when Paul McKeever 
on uh, Jim Chapman's Rogers Cablecast once telling him that, uh, and this was before anybody who knew who, who Dalton McGinty even was, that the word ban was one of the most frequent words appearing in the Liberal Party playbook. You know, words like allow and permit were simply not in there. And, you know, that really stinks, and it stunk since the beginning of the Liberal reign, the whole banning thing. Uh, Wynne wasn't even office for a wasn't in office for a day before she banned two other things. I forget what they even were. What were those things? Bullying or something? I don't know. And, and uh, you know, too bad something like banned deodorant couldn't solve this problem. <laughs> but that would just be covering up the stink, wouldn't it? <laughs> and isn't, isn't that what they've been doing all along? Uh, provincially, the incandescent ban was postponed just around the time that ad was running, but sad to say, sad because it's really stupid, <laughs> the federal conservatives have yet to cancel their plans to ban the incandescent bulb nationally in 2014. And so already I'm hearing about people stockpiling light bulbs and as, as the Europeans did you know, prior to their light bulb ban. Interesting, though, the you know, the PCs continue to support the Green Energy Act. They were among the most outspoken advocates of the CO2 stuff. And, uh, and this is provincially. In 2007, John Tory uh, condemned the Liberals for not making their planned ban on incandescence immediate. And uh, Tory condemned McGinty for delaying the ban, too, which was still in the offing. So I don't know really where they stand on this. But, um, again, that's the favorite expression in their lexicon. I could talk more about this, but I know you got something else you want to get to there. Oh, too. just a quick point on what you mm -hmm. just spoke about, the incandescent ban. I am absolutely flabbergasted that in a supposed free country, the Prime Minister of the nation can say, you can't make this thing. It's a thing. Yeah, no, just like any other electronic device. It's got a tungsten use. element surrounded by glass with a bit of argon or something in it. You're not allowed to make that. You can't sell it. People can't buy it. That's absolute fascism. I, it's beyond, you know, it's a whole other issue. Yeah. And, you know, it's all supposedly done for, for rationing purposes, which are, we, have a, we have a glut of electricity right now. We still have issues. You notice there's been some blackouts in the area lately? Yes, there is, yeah. And uh, it's kind of a little mystery around them. I don't know what's going on there, but it sounds like some of our equipment is still having a bit of trouble keeping up, even with this heat. Really? Yeah, well, mm -hmm. I can't blame it. It's like 40-something well. degrees out there. <laughs> but um, speaking of polarization and the by-election, I think part of the uh, problem that people face is the media. Now, the London Free Press has not been a very good upholder of the truth when it comes to elections out there. And I I'm very disappointed in it because a newspaper, a central newspaper like the London Free Press, should, I mean, I know it's a, a private entity and it can basically do what it wants, except lie, uh, even though it's getting very close to doing that. Um, it is a matter of public record. If anybody wants to know the history of London or history of any city, they often go to a library and look under the microfiche or on the internet about old back issues of the leading paper of the day to find out what went on. Well, if people do that in the future, looking back at today with the London Free Press, they are not getting the whole picture because that particular paper is doing the public a disservice by... For example, calling uh, Al Gretzky from the Freedom Party, uh, you know, an other candidate, others, you know, also Rands when he got 21,000 votes last election. I, I, I swear that if Al Gretzky won this election 
And by the way, there was a poll in the London Free Press which indicated he just might do that. Um, just as an yeah, aside, uh, polls, come on. it's an unscientific online poll, but it turned out that uh, on Tuesday, I looked at the poll, which was posted on Monday. People, um, over about 1,500 people, no, about 2,000 people or so, voted and found out that other basically Al Gretzky, uh, and possibly even Green Party mixed in there, um, got 28%. 28%, second to the Conservatives, beating out the Liberals and the NDP. Liberals got 11% with 309 votes on this poll. But then I posted it on uh, Twitter, uh, under uh, on Polly hashtag, which is Ontario Politics, and within hours, all of a sudden... Liberals shot up to 1,300, uh, over 1,000 new votes for Liberals, while the rest of them basically stayed the same. So, in other words, um, I think it was the, the tweet, perhaps, that did it, because this was up for two days, yeah. and then all of a sudden the Liberals just shot up in the poll because they got their big red machine together. And Something's got to be done. You know, I don't know. I understand you can sit there and just vote over and over again. Is that is that true? Uh, no, no? Um, I voted on it um, for you, other, <laughs> yeah. and, and then your your vote goes out. I think they they recognize your IP or something, and you can't do. You it sure again. about that? Uh, no, I'm not positive oh, okay, about it. Okay, because I was wondering. But um, I know I couldn't vote again. Okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, Al Gretzky of the other party, and you have Sun News Network. I understand recently on a show called Battleground, they listed uh, the candidates. You got Ken Curran of the uh, Liberals, Peggy Sadler of the NDP, Ali Chabar of the uh, uh, Progressives, and Gary Brown of the Green. And Al Gretzky was listed as the other party. Yeah, I know. On the very other show that party. made him the headline story. Two, when two Brian Lilly, yes, exactly, and David Aiken both uh, interviewed him on their show as being a Freedom Party. This particular show lists him as other. Uh, that's doing a disservice to the people, I think. Um, but anyway, I think it's uh, Ken Curran lost this election, and I suspect he will. Uh, and the Liberals lose. And what if Al Gretzky won? I think the headline the next day would read, Ken Curran of the Liberals loses to the other candidate of the other party. <laughs> also oh, lost were NDP candidate and the PC candidate. And the Liberal candidate was gracious in defeat, as were the NDP and the progressive candidate, who lamented that the only reason that they had not won was that they had not gotten enough votes. And in fine print at the bottom of the article probably might appear the writing was won by Al Gretzky of the Freedom Party. Watch how this now that's will cynicism change. cynicism in the extreme. Oh, totally cynical. Yeah. But no, um, I think uh, his history has proven this out. As smaller parties, especially those who are buck the trend and polarize the issues, like the Reform Party, Canadian Alliance of old, um, what happened was, they, first of all, they are ignored. Secondly, when they can no longer be ignored, what happens? They get smeared. The word ultra-right-wing gets thrown in there. And you can just watch the as Freedom Party starts to advance in the polls and, and gets more credible candidates and actually starts to make a difference and give people a choice, you can start to see the smears coming out there. We've already been labeled as fringe, and that's a pejorative as it is, but you watch for some nastier ones coming out of the London Free Press and the media in the near future. Well, I hope they're not anywhere as nasty as what they're pointing at the other parties. <laughs> maybe we should count our blessings. Eh? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's better to be ignored, but no, no, it's not. you got to tell the truth out there. you got to let people know of their choices in an election all the time. Who's next, me? Yeah, what you got? Well, I, got a, just a, I just wanted to finish uh, a bit of a story that I started last week that I couldn't get into uh, mm. because we were run, running out of time again. Um, and that was when we were talking about some of the PC... Uh, 
policies of the past, and particularly the one regarding uh, the monopoly Ontario Hydro that was created way back when. And uh, it was effectively nationalized by the provincial conservatives here in Ontario through various, you know, laws, maneuvers, etc., controlling the market. They took over the private power generation company that a private group of gentlemen built to run electricity from Niagara Falls to Toronto. We talked about that, how they established the monopoly. But here's, here's an interesting little side story, and Paul, Paul McKeever told us this in, in an email. I know he's written about it. But he says one of the original industrialists who set up the power generation in Niagara for Toronto was the fellow who built Casaloma in Toronto for his wife. Have you ever been to Casaloma? I have. It's an awesome place. It is. We'll talk about that in a sec. But his name was Sir Henry Pellet. And the province expropriated his electrical power generating business and his aircraft manufacturing business later as part of the war effort during World War I. So we're going back a ways here. Combined, of course, these difficulties led to his, uh, you know, being forced to go bankrupt and forced him and Lady Pellet to leave Casaloma. And I understand he died virtually penniless, spending his final days at his chauffeur's home in the Toronto suburb of Memico. And ironically added McKeever, it was the Liberals who opposed the Conservatives' expropriation of his power generation business. So it was a real switch in ideologies at the time. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, lately, I, 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 we used to go to, um, to the building, Castle Loma, building castle. It's a castle. It's right in downtown Toronto. It's Beautiful. an amazing oh, yes. place. I don't know that they give the same tours as when I used to go. Um, I understand one of the, uh, you know... Um, local charities and people looked after it and now Toronto's been rearranging how they do it. Been reading about that in the paper a bit. And I think they still give tours but maybe not the same ones that we were used to. I don't know if they let people run around as freely. Do you ever have have fun running around there? Oh uh, yes, you uh, could go in the tunnels between the carriage house awesome. and the main house and the servants' quarters and all that. It was just uh, an amazing but place. What a to tragedy see. to think that the, all that was taken away from the guy who created yes. it, who brought power to the people, pardon the pun, uh -huh. right? And who as a consequence ends up dying penniless. Yeah. This is what democracy does to people, you know, and if you in terms of taking over their businesses. We're no better off today. I bet you at that time they believe, well, if he doesn't run it, we can control prices and stuff. All these economic myths that government keep falling into, you know. Let us run it and then then the costs won't go, won't go out of control, yeah. which of course is always 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 the very opposite. Very opposite. So I don't know who comes up with these conclusions to even bring them into to being. People with interests who don't care about the other guy getting hurt, I guess. Evil I people. Know. Evil. Well, I would say so if to the extent that they know the consequences of their actions. Sometimes I don't know if they did. Hmm. Hard to say. Capitalism's an evolving thing. Uh, one little item before mm. we go to the break at the bottom of the hour. Uh, the leader of the federal NDP party, Kim Jong-un, oh, I'm sorry, that's not Kim Jong-un, it's Thomas Mulcair. I'm sorry, <laughs> I get that confused because their policies are so similar. Um, he did a rather disgusting thing. Uh, the uh, Lake Megantic uh, train derailment and disaster, which killed about 50 people. Uh, the day after, he's out there basically saying, uh, well, saying this, I quote, we've got to get beyond this new system that they seem to be wanting to put in place of self-regulation. He's talking about the train industry. Governments have to regulate in the public interest. Nothing more important in what governments do than taking care of the safety of the public. And this is another case where the government has been cutting in the wrong area. 
said Mulcair. And I think that this is indicative of a rather evil ideology that's out there that uh, no tragedy should go to waste when um, when you're thinking of uh, regulating the people, taking away their rights. Uh, you can look at 9-11, you can look at uh, the wars, you can look at any disaster, and there's always some miscreant in the wings like Mulcair wanting to come out there and saying, you see, I told you so, all government should control everything. Everybody should be regulated and this won't happen. And it's usually the exact opposite. I heard the other day, for example, you know, that somebody, uh, some child died well, in, it, a, in a private daycare. But they made mention of the fact that it was an unlicensed private daycare. You know, a child died. Well, you know something? Children die in government-run regular daycares too. The problem is that that with a private-run daycare, you've got responsibility with the government. You don't. It's the same mentality as I was just talking about with the, with the hydro situation. Exactly. There you go. So, uh, is that it for that there, Robert? Yeah. Let's yeah. Well, when break. we return after the break here, we're going to be talking about uh, what I think is a phony issue. Ha ha. It's about your cell phones and, and the proposals to take them away from you directly if you get caught in your car driving while you're speaking on, on a cell phone. Certainly, phones have changed a lot over the years, and we're running into all these new issues as, as though they were something new entirely. Just Every time a new piece of technology comes along, we act like uh, human beings have don't don't possess the behavior qualities yes. to deal with it, right? Yeah. And uh, when you go back into the fifties and you see the early stuff, and you can almost see the same silly patterns. But here it's coming out of out of this whole cell phone thing. But we'll talk about that when we return. What's neat about the phone and the history of Winnipeg is Stephen Juba, our old mayor from a few years back, is actually the man responsible for the emergency system. When you, you know, it was an emergency, dial 911. He was the guy that actually invented it, believe it or not. You know? Apparently somebody broke into his house, scared the bejesus out of him. Next morning, that was it. You know? We're getting the system. But uh, the original phone number for all you that remember was 999. Huh? Huh? With a rotary phone. Huh? I would have liked a bit of that meeting, you know? What do you think, Stephen? One, one, one. No, I don't like it. <laughs> nine, nine, nine with a rotary phone. You know, oh, someone's coming to the house. Nine. <laughs> oh, they're coming up the stairs. Nine. <laughs> oh, there's a knife in my back. Nine. Finger falls out halfway through anyway. Hello, Rosario. It's Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, no home. No, no, this is Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, no home. He's in, um, in Germany. Rosario, it's me, Jonathan. Ah, oh, Jonathan. You sound so far away. Yeah, okay. Good talking to you, Rosario. Take care. Adios. More residents? Hi, Rosario. It's Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, no home. No, Rosario, it's me, Jonathan. You sound so close. <laughs> no matter where you might be when a phone rings, isn't it always a distraction? You know, 
Yes. Don't you always... I think that's the point. You know, (laughs) I mean, exactly, right? Like you're sitting at home, the phone rings, even if you're expecting a call, there's something negative about that phone ringing almost all the time. Uh, You know, if, if not an outright interruption of anything you might be doing, like driving, okay? Uh, you know, a few shows back, we talked about the possibility of cell phones causing cancer, and generally we concluded there wasn't a heck of a lot of reliable evidence to make that case. But it does seem that cell phones cause political correctness and blindness when it comes to the unseen consequences of seizing them from drivers caught using them while driving, which I understand includes using them while you're standing at a stop sign or a stoplight, by the way, just in case people think you're free and clear because you're standing still in traffic. If you're in traffic, you're in traffic. Now, of course, count me among those people who get really angry and outraged at distracted driver behavior. We see it around us all every day. That's when I kind of wish that my car was equipped with phasers and photon torpedoes and, you know, <laughs> James Bond kind of car. You know what I'm talking about? You want to get rid of that guy in front of you and just surface blow him out of surface the water. Missiles. Yeah, those kind of things. So I can understand people's anger about that. I totally relate. I can be just as unreasonable and unrealistic about dealing with the problem as are apparently London City Councillor Stephen Orser and London West PC candidate Ali Chabar. Just take their cell phones away, suggests Orser, in dealing with not distracted driving, but with using a cell phone while driving, even if there's no direct evidence of distracted driving. That's what this is all about, really. I only wish that distracted driving and not cell phones was the target of their efforts. But of course, we already have laws against distracted driving. So advocating a campaign against distracted driving wouldn't get much political mileage, would it? So what you do is give police powers beyond regulating behavior and give it to them. Give them the power and authority to seize private property for the offense of using that private property. And that's really what it comes down to. Chip Martin in the July 13, 2013 Free Press writes uh, under the headline, Cell Phone Seizure Hits Roadblock. And he writes as follows, City Councilor Stephen Orser said Friday he'll do whatever it takes to see cell phones are seized by police from motorists who use them while driving. Legal experts say his pitch that City Hall take the steps to let police see cell phones is misguided. Cities can do no such thing. Support for Orser's bid proved to be significant around water coolers and in comments responding to a free press story. By the way, in the sidebar to the same article, reader reaction in the, under reader reaction, it reads, quote, Many responders attacked Orser personally and ridiculed his idea. About 60% opposed it. So that was kind of a contrast to what was being said in the main story. And again, in another sidebar, civil libertarian reaction under that headline, it read, This is the first time I've ever heard of this specific proposal, says Abby Deshman, spokesman for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We know that cell phones contain an incredible amount of personal information. They can literally track your every movement. They keep your contacts, your emails. They can have financial data, business data. It's a trove of personal information. And for that reason, we have to be extremely careful when we authorize anyone to seize that kind of device. People here are not under arrest for a criminal offense, right? So that's, again, confirming what I'm saying. We're not talking about even distracted driving. We're just talking about using a cell phone. Now, Orser in the main article, this is going back to the main article, quote, Orser said he is pleased. Ali Chabar, progressive conservative candidate in the August 1st provincial by-election in London West, expressed support for the idea because it may save lives. 
It's already got a foothold at the provincial level, Orser said, and it is at the provincial level that any such initiative will have to emanate, it seems, which of course would mean Ali Chavar. Under the Municipal Act, there's no jurisdiction for a city to do that, Lawyer, uh, London lawyer Gord Cudmore said on Friday. Undaunted, Orser says he's asking city staff to suggest how phone seizure can be accomplished. And if it means passing a resolution asking the province to act, so be it. That doesn't mean we can't upload to the province to get some action, he said. They can seize a radar detector and take it away and open liquor and seize your car for certain offenses, so where is the problem? Well, the bottom line, Orser insisted, is police need a new power to deal with unsafe driving. And that's the end of that. So, you know, once, you know, once again, we see our politicians focusing on an object of so-called distraction, not on the subject of the distracted behavior on the part of a driver. Now, okay, let's, let's play along with that. If objects are their target, then why not take the car away? Isn't driving the thing that's going to kill you and not talking on the phone? Why would they take his phone away? He's, he's talking and driving. Which is of those two things is the dangerous thing? Mm-hmm. The car. So if you're going to take something away, take the car away. Okay, I'm not. I'm not supporting that. I mean, that would be more rational, wouldn't, wouldn't it? If it, if the if the object is about driving, slightly more rational. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if a cell phone distracts you and police can take it away from you, then then would it logically follow that if your car radio distracts you, police have the power to immediately remove and 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 or disable it? Because I was reading, you know, a police officer called and he says this. The, the legislation specifically says electronic communication or entertainment device. Wouldn't that be a radio? Mm-hmm. You know, now, mind you, if your car was, or rather, if your child was sitting on the seat next to you and was distracted, I don't think the child would be removed to children's aid. You know, but then again, that child, you can communicate with it, but it's not electronic. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I can see unrestrained pets. Pets in a car are a clear and present danger. You know, a, a, an unrestrained animal in a car becomes a missile if they get in an accident, right? And if people have to wear seatbelts, surely animals should be restrained. If someone was reading a newspaper while they were driving, I've seen that before, some guy putting a paper on the steering wheel sure. driving. Uh, tell me what good would be to take away the newspaper from the driving driver to, to, to address that problem. Do you really think you would have solved the problem by taking the newspaper away? And, of course, the bigger and more obvious truth about the issue is that not every person who happens to be talking on a cell phone while driving is actually being distracted. I'm sorry, I've seen a lot of safe drivers talk on a phone. Uh, and it must be ha- it must be happening because there's millions and millions and millions of people on the phone at any given point in time, and if it were you know, they seem to get from place to place without an accident. Well, of course, you know, and there's actually jurisdictions. No, I don't own a cell phone, so it's even beyond my experience. There's jurisdictions in the states. Uh, I'm not sure about Canada anymore, but in the states where uh, it's not against the law to use your handheld cell phone while you're driving, and if if you recall, it's only been a couple of years that it's been against the law here. People used to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I used to do it. Don't do it anymore because I've got a hand, hands-free device. Yeah. But, um, yeah, <laughs> millions upon millions of times. There's the odd time when somebody tragically gets killed because yeah. they're distracted because of it. You can be distracted by anything. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I found that when somebody was going to use their cell phone in a car, their awareness of the driving heightened. Because, you know, they, they double-check everything, right? Mm-hmm. Make sure it's safe. So I guess it all depends on the driver. Um, and, of course, where is the due process of law in a situation where people just pull somebody over, not for dangerous or distracted driving, but simply for talking on a cell phone? I'm sorry, that bothers me. I don't even own a cell phone, but it still bothers me. I figure I'm going to get, you know, 
picked up someday from by a police because I'm scratching my ear. Yeah. Right, right. And then he'll look around for some electronic device and get me for my calculator or something. I don't know. But it just it just doesn't sound just in some way. And the way so many people talk about the issue, it's almost like they're out for revenge, as if anybody caught talking on a cell phone has already killed somebody. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you ever notice that? And uh, no, part of that's a self me- self-defense mechanism. I feel it. I don't want people like that driving around. Uh, I don't want to be hit by somebody who's distracted. Uh, now, of course, being a lawyer, London West PC candidate Ali Chabar had to be fully aware of all these obstacles, like the fundamental injustice of the whole thing, and yet he went out of his way on the call-in show on Andy Utman to make it sound like he was in favor of Orser's proposal and would support it. And, uh, you know, they're not concerned with dangerous behavior, but with statutory misbehavior, right? The rule says no cell phones while driving, period. Distracted driving is the issue distract- to distract us right from the real issue and uh you know but when it comes to taking away people's cell phones just because of a statutory offense um, i get kind of creeped out there you know it's a conversation worth having says ali chabar he says i can't i can't say to the specific proposal anything that saves lives is okay with me now it seems to me that when someone says explicitly i can't say to the specific proposal that is not as orser contends uh expressing support for the idea. Do you you express that as support for an idea? No, that just sounded like a smarmy uh, political response to me. Yeah, you know, and... and Let's talk about it. No, I called in on the very same show. I called in right after he said that, and I I clarified it. I I said, listen, uh, you know, he gave the usually PC correct uh, correct move, you know, politically correct move, uh, or answer, rather, which is a non-answer answer, because conversations are all that PCs ever offer us. And conversations about distractions from the reality that their policies do not differ from those who they're running against. So, you know, taking cell phones away is not a creative solution to the problem. I think it's a bully approach. The real objects of distraction in all of this are the politicians who raise controversial issues to deflect our attention from the bigger and more real issue of an ever-encroaching government with ever-increasing powers, costs, taxes, and a continuous failure in improving or solving the problem they set out to, 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 to fix. So calling for, for more police powers is not a move in the right direction. It's as leftward as you can get. Let's not make the term cell phone mean that using one will end up with you in a cell. Okay, that's you know. Now is that a phony issue or what? Hey, Robert. Oh, oh, come on. Let's go to break. Okay, let's go to break and let's head into outer space after this. Millhouse, Millhouse, this is Miss Tomlin again. I don't know why we've had a, a lag in our communication. It must be something wrong with your instrument. But anyway, Millhouse, this is your lucky day. Because do I have the phones for you, and they're in all the appropriate colors. Well, by appropriate, I mean appropriate. For instance, now, if you're going to make a call to the fleet, you might call on our new shade of naval orange. Isn't that creative? No? Well, how about for any oriental calls, you can use our new exciting shade of curious yellow. Oh, I did too. I just loved it. Wasn't it terrific? Did, did it do anything for you? No. Well, oh, I know what we have. We have a terrific phone with an option, and it would be perfectly good for you to call all the heads of labor unions. It has a very tightly coiled cord. Well, it's it's coiled because it looks like it's ready to strike. Hello? 
Hello. Hello. Morning, everyone. Morning, Morning, sir. What have we got today? We've detected several phenomena. A Giral-class supernova remnant, approximately three light years off our course. That's interesting. What else? A cluster of three neutron stars. Very unusual. How about that? Three stone-cold stars. Pretty exciting, huh? Anything else? There is one other thing might be worth swinging by to take a look. A Minshara-class planet, about four and a half light years away. Any life signs? Only about 500 million. <laughs> if our scans are right, it looks like there's a whole civilization down there. <laughs> you might have put that on the top of the list. You know, I wonder why the Vulcans will call uh, a planet that could support human life a Minshara class. Wouldn't they call it a, a Vulcan-like planet? I don't know. Don't I mean, they call it Earth-like planets, would they? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think uh, other people who don't speak English would call it Earth-like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, if we call it Earth-like, wouldn't the Vulcans yeah, call it Vulcan-like? <laughs> you know. Anyway, I think we live in a pretty interesting age of discovery here when it comes to planets and exoplanets. And, uh, something it's been an ongoing thing recently, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the Kepler spacecraft, I think, is broken now. What? I just, I just read that yesterday. Apparently, it's uh, not working. We'll send a mechanic out to fix it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, you were saying something not too long ago about epistemology and how knowledge is basically everything. It's existence. And a thing, a thing can only be discovered once. And then that moment is lost in history forever, the discovery of it. For example, Clyde Tombaugh discovered uh, Pluto in 1930. Now, that particular dwarf planet basically came from non-existence to existence, and of course, I'm speaking epistemologically rather than metaphysically. Sure, right? As a matter of our knowledge. Right. right. As a matter of our knowledge, that planet did not exist before 1930, and now it exists. I think that's an amazing discovery. And we Although live... we've declassified it, haven't we? Isn't it no longer a planet? Well, you know, I've, I've gotten a way around that. What was his name Tyson, who uh, demoted Pluto, Pluto to dwarf yeah. planet? Actually, Back it's, a, it's World, still right? a planet. It's <laughs> still a planet. You've got your four rocky planets. You've got your four gas planets. That's eight. Then you've got your dwarf planets. That's nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, whatever. Eris is actually bigger than Pluto. I think they're planets. They just have that little uh, caveat at the beginning. Rocky planet, gas planet, dwarf planet. Okay. They're all planets. Anyway, I don't know. Well, they're all in orbit, and they all follow that. I don't know what the basic definition of planet would be in terms of... Its they have to clear their orbit of all the debris. Yeah. Anyway, I'm digressing from what I wanted to talk about, which was the discovery of uh, a new planet, exoplanet, called Gliese 667cc. It was discovered by the European Southern Observatory, and it's unique in that it's an Earth-like planet, a Minshara-class planet? Yeah. <laughs> Earth-like planet, and... Um, it's only 22 light years from Earth, or 23.6, um, depending on what you read, from Earth, and, and is home 
this particular um, tri, uh, tri-star system, the triple star system of Gliese 667, is home to many planets, three of which have been discovered to be Earth-like and occupy the habitable zone, meaning that water can be liquid on the surface, basically, of these planets, and as a consequence, life might exist there. Fascinating time we live in. And if you tuned into the show uh, number 201 on May 26, 2011, which is available from our website, justratemedia.org, then you know my views on man's exploration of space. I surmise that it might take thousands, if not tens of thousands of years to venture to even the nearest stars, if we do it all. Now, this being said, Gliese 667cc, and I hope they come up with a shorter name than that soon, has now been discovered and cannot be undiscovered. And 10,000 years from now, if our descendants even venture that far, they might look back at this particular time in history and claim that their new world was discovered in the distant past of the year 2012, which it was last year. Gliese 667cc fires up the imagination. In Star Trek Earth-like planets, uh, where they're called Minchara class by the Vulcans, although in reality we have our actual, we have actually developed several classification schemes to compare distant exoplanets to our home planet. Uh, the Earth Similarity Index, or ESI Index, uh, abbreviated to be called Easy Index, compares the physical characteristics of the planets, the radius, density, escape velocity, and temperature. And using this index, the closest Earth-like planet is. KOI-1686.01 which lies 1033 light years away it has an easy index of 0.89 with of course earth having an index of 1 so that's pretty close to earth but 1033 light years away is so ludicrously far away as to not matter at all except to the most dedicated followers of astrometrics basically who cares you know it's so far away Another tantalizing index of similarity is the SPH, or the Standard Primary Habitability Index. Now, this index compares the likelihood of vegetation growth taking into consideration things like surface temperature and relative humidity. Earth has an SPH of 0.72, while Gliese 667cc has an SPH of 0.61. So, in other words, it's pretty darn likely that if life exists on Gliese 667cc, it's there because it can be there according to our measurements. There are other indices such as habitable habitable zone uh, distance, habitable zone composition, habitable zone atmosphere and planetary class and habitable class, and there's lots of different classes, and Gliese 667cc ranks fifth in an amalgam of all these indices amongst known exoplanets, and there's thousands of them out there. But those planets ranking first to fourth are over 500 light years away from us. Now, add to this information that we are in which, the which is relatively close in, in, in oh, astronomical it's terms. It's in our backyard. So, yeah. I mean, it's 22 light years away. This, um, this is a planet of science fiction novels, novels are made of. It lies in what I like to call the communication zone or the dialogue zone. Uh, I just made this up, by the way. Yeah. The communication zone. Listen to John Tory. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have a dialogue. Oh, no. <laughs> now, if somebody made this up before me, then kudos to them, but I never heard of it before, so I'm claiming it. There you go. It is the zone within which a communication signal moving at the speed of light can be sent and theoretically replied to within a person's lifetime. Say, for argument's sake, we live uh, an average of 80 years old. You send a signal as a young man to a distant planet and hope to get a response. 
whether from an advanced extraterrestrial race or perhaps even in the distant future from a human colony. And you hope to get that response within your lifespan of about 80 years. Now, given that you, you know, you send the signal uh, upon your own maturity at, say, 20 years and you die at 80s, the furthest the planet can get or can be to get a reply back before you snuff it is about 30 light years. Anything further, and you're just not, you're just wasting your time. If you can't expect a response before you, you're pushing up the daisy, why bother? Well, is, you bother for the next generation, right? Well, yeah, that's rather altruistic of you, but I mean, I'd like to get a response. <laughs> While there I are think science doesn't wait for us to uh, <laughs> to confirm <laughs> its its validity yeah. based on our lifespan, yeah. It's my belief that life is a natural condition of the universe. DNA, while complex, is only a molecule and a self-replicating molecule which can end up producing anything from slime mold to Barack Obama. Okay, that's not a wide <laughs> enough comparison. How about from slime mold to Carl Sagan? That's a better one. Okay. Life, I believe, with little evidence admittedly to back it up, is everywhere life can physically exist, given the right elements, temperature, and protection from radiation. So let's say life exists on Gliese 667cc. And let's just say it is of sufficient sophistication that it can send a radio signal. Then it's exciting to think that we may, within a lifetime, be able to communicate with it. It's a, if it's a barren world or a world filled up only with slime mold, lichen, algae, and Marxists, then of course it won't be sending a signal back. Did you get my little Marxist thing? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but theoretically, at some point in man's future, we may have a colony ship sent to this neighboring planet, which could set up a colony, which could communicate with us in a reasonable time frame. We could enter into an arrangement where they would communicate their discoveries and their culture back to Earth, and we, in exchange, would send them our cultural advances and scientific advances. Both would benefit. But for those exoplanets so far away as to be mere table notations in some astronomy textbook, there's no hope that we can engage in any meaningful, meaningful communication. And so, epistemologically speaking, they may as well not exist. They serve little use to us. They are quite literally academic. The further you get away from this communication zone, this dialogue zone, the less likely the desire to communicate at all. Now, case in point, in 1974, Dr. Frank Drake, famous for the Drake Equation, and Carl Sagan sent a message using the Arecibo radio telescope to a globular cluster of stars 25,000 light years away. If there were any life there with the capability to decipher the message and reply, we wouldn't receive it for 50,000 years. Now I ask you, what's the point of that? The top off, 25,000 light years away is, as you reminded me, Bob, Borg space. So the only signal we could expect to receive is, <laughs> we are the Borg, you will be assimilated. Anyway, well. I'm all in favor of expanding our knowledge with regard to the discovery of Earth-like planets. But the only ones that have any chance of being visited by our children's children, children should be of any practical interest to us. And Gliese well, 667cc we gets that go. bill. I know, we're out of time. We're out of time. Another week. We'll see you next week, and be sure to join us again then when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I'm convinced this vehicle is the final stage of an outer space research program. Me too. It was obviously intended to relay some kind of information back to Earth. I agree. <laughs> Gilligan, why don't you stop that? You don't know anything at all about space. I know one thing about it. You take up more of it than I do. Very funny.
Gilligan, there are three types of space. There's the space up there, the space down there, and the space between your ears. <laughs> <laughs>